Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Chodosh. I'm Prabita Saha. And I'm Claire Maldarelli. So, on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we usually do things a certain way, and this week, we're not going to do them that way at all. So I'm not going to go through my normal spiel. But today, we are here to talk about one very important subject, the election. Oh, no. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. In typical Weirdest Thing fashion, we have no intention of discussing the news of the day or talking about things you're already stressed out about so you can stress out about them more. Weirdest Thing is a place to decompress, de-stress, and learn some bizarre stories that uh, can help you take your mind off the world around you. And our election-themed episode is no different. We can't promise you won't learn anything relevant to our modern democracy or a certain upcoming election that you should absolutely vote in if you have the ability to do so. But any of that will happen by accident, and you won't even notice because you'll be having such a fun time. So, Instead of our usual format of three longish facts, we are just going to bombard you with an infotainment hurricane of uh, just absolutely off the wall, or at least pretty intriguing facts related to elections, government, elected officials, founding fathers who like to hang out in the nude etc. So let's get into it. I figured we should start with just kind of a whirlwind tour of some of the world's most surprising past and present voting laws and requirements. Perbita, I think you have some info for us on why we hold elections on the day that we do. Yeah, so election day has been the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November for almost the past 200 years. It was decided by the federal government as a holiday, which we don't actually get off on for work, in 1845. And prior to this, every state had its own election day schedule. So this was just a way to standardize it across the country. That said, the timing was picked because back then, 
much of the country was working in agriculture and on their own little personal farms. This was pre-industrial revolution. And so a lot of the weird timing is because of people's farming schedules. We chose November because it fits squarely between harvests um, in the fall and, you know, getting the fields ready again in the winter. And Tuesday is a bit more of a tricky selection process. It was kind of done by a process of elimination. We couldn't do Sunday because that's when most people were going to church. Couldn't do Wednesday because that's when most families had to travel long distances to go sell their wares on the market. And between those days, again, the families needed a travel day because they were living in super rural areas far away from polling locations. So with all that said, it came down to having election day on Tuesday, and we've been sticking to that ever since. Wow. The number of things that are that are happening in the U.S. that are because of farmers is astounding to me. Farmers, <laughs> farmers influence so much of the U.S. Well, now for something completely different. Uh, I just learned that in Tennessee, you technically are not allowed to run for or hold any elected office if you have ever been in a duel, challenged someone to a duel, uh, aided or abetted people participating in a duel. So, you know, that that hints at what a problem that used to be. (laughs) Politicians were just running around occasionally shooting each other. I will talk more about a particularly duel-happy president from our our nation's history in a little bit. But yeah, it's also true in Tennessee that technically no person who denies the being of God or a future state of rewards and punishments can hold any office uh, in the civil department of Tennessee. That is true. There are there are eight states in our great nation where it is technically illegal to hold office if you like are an atheist. They all use slightly different phrasing, uh, but the effect is if you do not subscribe to a belief in a higher being, you are not technically supposed to be allowed to hold any governmental office. That is. Pennsylvania, where I live now, and I did not know that this was a rule, Delaware, Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Missouri, Arkansas, Texas, not Missouri, Mississippi. I take it back. It's Mississippi. I'm sorry, Missouri. <laughs> they So like all of these books are still in the laws, um, but they are not upheld anymore because in 1961, there was a Supreme Court decision that said it was a violation of a person's rights under the First and Fourteenth Amendments to prevent someone from holding office based on their religious beliefs. So basically, like, all these laws are still there because no one's ever bothered to actually go back and say, like, okay, well, this you cannot actually have this law. But they are all still technically on the books. Also, there's, like, a, a very large percentage of the U.S. who said, like, they would not vote for someone who is an atheist. So though it is not illegal, in effect you have a very hard time getting elected if you are an atheist still. That reminds me of a, another fact I found uh, about who is allowed to vote for office. Uh, so this is one that gets shared a lot as being like hilarious. Um, and if you're a regular listener of Weirdest Thing, you might understand why it's actually really not. So in Ohio, the Constitution says you can't vote if you're an idiot. And as I talked about on an episode of Weirdest Thing uh, about my hometown, Vineland, New Jersey, which uh, is where the word moron was invented, terms like idiot and moron were actually medical terms. So when you see uh, a law that refers to an idiot, uh, it is actually a really horrible ableist, very outdated law that should not exist. Uh, So Ohio's constitution actually states, no idiot or insane persons shall be entitled to the privileges of an elector. And there are similar laws in New Mexico and Mississippi. But luckily, uh, federal law says that uh, a person can't be barred from voting due to uh, supposed incompetence, except in very, very limited circumstances. People who have uh, cognitive disabilities 
are entitled to vote, uh, even if they're under guardianship, even if they're receiving care, if they, you know, live in a, a group home or another care facility, they are still entitled to vote. Um, and in fact, people with certain disabilities uh, can also receive help with voting uh, from friends, family members, or caregivers. So suck it, Ohio's constitution. That is what I have to say. <laughs> I'm going to inject a little fun fact into here because I feel like this past few had been a little depressing. Did you not find that fun, Claire? I, I, I personally <laughs> did not. Um, but this one, hopefully everyone will. Uh, so I have never thought about the country of Lick. Can Lick? Oh, my gosh. I even wrote down how to pronounce it. Lichtenstein. <laughs> It's a tiny country <laughs> that literally I wrote down like space 10, space Stein. All right. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, it's a tiny country. It's mostly known for being the richest nation per capita in the world. And its methods for providing citizenship are also unique. This municipality prepares a bio about each family who hopes to secure citizenship, and they have to put in all of this information about themselves, like where they work, what hobbies they do, um, maybe even their astrological sign. I don't know. Probably not. But, you know, it could be a <laughs> hobby of theirs. And then, essentially, the entire registered voters of Liechtenstein are allowed to vote on whether this person or this family can gain citizenship. And everyone who lives in Liechtenstein is allowed to vote. So essentially, the whole country votes on whether you and your family and your hobbies are allowed to be citizens of Liechtenstein, which I love. And it is also very, very hard <laughs> to become a citizen there. So don't feel like you can just up and move to Liechtenstein whenever you want. Um, between the periods of 2011 and 2014, only 18 people gain citizenship in this manner. I do know that Liechtenstein is smaller. I just looked up the population because I was curious. It's uh, it's just under 39,000. So it's pr pretty small for a country, but very rich. Yeah. Their GDP per capita is like twice ours. Um. Sorry, I was got distracted by the population of Liechtenstein. Um, I found out that, um, speaking of, of general suffrage, that women used to have the right to vote in Utah. They still do, just to be clear. But they used to have it uh, back in the day and then lost it for a brief period, which is a little bit strange. So apparently, technically, Wyoming was the first U.S. state slash territory uh, to give women the right to vote. But Utah technically had the first election so they did have the first women who actually voted but 17 years later it was effectively revoked with the edmunds tucker act which was basically like a an act of legislation that tried to get rid of polygamy so they required that an oath be taken that you were not a polygamist and since a huge fraction of the population of Utah at that time, like Utah wasn't even a state, it was the Utah Territory, since a huge fraction of the women there were in polygamous relationships, that basically meant that the women did no longer had the right to vote anymore. Um, but as far as I can tell, I think it also meant that polygamist men didn't have the right to vote, I think, if you were, in fact, like, a, in a polygamous relationship at the time. You so you like you couldn't vote, you couldn't serve on a jury, and you couldn't hold public office. Um, but it ended up getting resolved because the Mormon Church ended its endorsement of polygamy officially in 1890, and then five years after that, Utah adopted a constitution that restored women's suffrage. And then a year after that, Congress was like, "Yep, Utah can be a state now," and it was all okay. Utah is a really pretty state. It is a beautiful, strange place. Mm -hmm. I would say. It's also one of the states that for a long time prohibited the sale of alcohol around Election Day. And this is more because uh, not of the actions of voters, but because of the shady actions of politicians. A lot of politicians, including our founding father, George Washington himself, they would wine and dine voters just to buy their allegiance. This practice goes all the way back to ancient Greece and Rome, uh, but it has quite a bit of history here in the U.S. as well. Like I said, George Washington, early in his governing career, he's been known to buy rum, punch, hard cider, and beer for voters to get them to cast their ballots in support of him. 
honestly, better bar options than some of the weddings I've been to. (laughs) I hope your friends listen to this podcast, Perbita. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't been to that many weddings, so it'll be easy for them to know if I'm talking about them. (laughs) You know who you are. (laughs) Uh, And this practice was called swilling the bumbo, uh, which I don't quite know what that means, but I love it, and I will use that phrase often. And it led some states, uh, including Utah, South Carolina, Alaska, and even Massachusetts to pass prohibition specifically around Election Day. Most states have since revoked that temporary ban on alcohol. And yeah, it's unclear if that hurt or helped the politicians' uh, cause in the end. Bumbo, by the way, is a drink made from rum, water, sugar, and nutmeg, mm. which sounds pretty lovely. Yeah, I just googled it. Nice. I do feel like sometimes before I go into like the voting booths, that I could use like a glass of wine or something just to calm my nerves. Not that I haven't prepared. Shots. Just take a shot. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Not that I haven't prepared and know who I'm going to vote for. I just feel like sometimes, like in the moment, like you know, like white coat syndrome when you go to the doctor, you're like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Um, Which brings me to my next fact of most people know who they're going to vote for when they get in. But (laughs) obviously, you get in there and you're like, shoot, everything's new. Maybe I haven't been to this specific polling booth before. So you want to orient yourself. But you don't have forever. In many states, there are actually time limits on the amount of time that you can spend in the voting booth itself. So the state of Indiana limits voters to just three minutes inside the voting booth, which seems like a long time, but for me, I think it would be short. Um, and then Alabama caps it at four. That Kansas, sounds so short to me. Yes, it's very stressful. Kansas gives you five minutes, so both you and me would probably want to move to California then because that gives you an eternity of 10 minutes. But <clears throat> when I researched this further, it doesn't really look like anyone ever in history that I could find, at least, has actually enforced any of these limits. So a 1988 article in the LA Times reported that the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld a law that limits that 10-minute in a voting booth, but local officials said they never planned to enforce the law. Quote, I cannot see how we can chase somebody out of a booth after 10 minutes, said Charles Weisbird, Los Angeles County's registrar recorder. Everybody's going to have time to vote. I love Charles. So, uh, yeah, and I couldn't find any evidence uh, of any other state enforcing these laws. So even if they exist, and it looks like they do, and they were dated back to the early 1900s, though it's not clear why they exist, and it doesn't look like anyone enforces it. So when you get in there, just take a breath and know that you have forever if you choose, but you will anger everybody behind you. And, of course, now it's totally different with the way the world is but i get very anxious in the voting booth and this year for the first time ever i got a mail-in ballot that i'm going to physically drop off in the ballot box and it's so wonderful to just sit with my ballot and be able to research people instead of walking in and saying thinking who are most of these people i don't know like the opposite of stressful i agree i had i felt the same way i really feel like going like to the voting booths is like going to the doctor but telemedicine is not like that i feel like i still get nervous in the telemedicine but (laughs) That's true. In some countries, it is actually illegal to try to influence people at all on Election Day, sort of also related back to the alcohol thing. Here in the U.S., Election Day is um, like a like a big game or a big party for all of the news networks who get tons of people to tune in so that they can show you every single percentage that is now reporting in every single county. But um, in a bunch of countries, you are you are just not allowed to talk about the election like There's many countries uh, like New Zealand where on election day you are not allowed to talk about the election like until a certain time um, or just like for the 24 hours of election day. So like you can have election coverage up until the day before, but on the day, all the newscasters just have to pretend like nothing's going on. Just (laughs) I love things are normal. (laughs) So there's like like Russia, Portugal, Bulgaria, Armenia. They all do it for 24 hours. But there's also places that do it for more than that. So Argentina, Mozambique, Nepal, Paraguay, Sri Lanka, that's all 48 hours. And then Australia and Indonesia, it's like three days, like their elections on a Saturday. And I think you're not allowed to talk about the election starting on like the Wednesday, which honestly, we should adopt. It drives me insane. It makes me so stressed. I feel like we should just just don't talk about it. 
just everybody gets to vote because like that's the idea is just you should have some space mentally to think about who do I want to vote for not who is a tv network telling me to vote for but what do I think as an individual I love it I'm, I support Same. it yeah I could see that being uh swinging the opposite way and maybe you know restricting everyone from talking about the election so does it also like if I as a journalist tweeted about election results, would I be censored around that? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it has to do with media. Like, I don't think anyone is is preventing individuals from, like, mentioning the election. But I think the idea is that you're not supposed to be publishing anything that would, like, try to convince you any particular way. Like, you can't tell people about, like, what the latest polling data is or anything like that. I don't know how far it extends, though. Like, I don't know if journalists in those countries are not allowed to discuss it at all. That's a really good question. I don't know. So there's this method of voting in Gambia that might, that you would think would make it be able to eliminate all of those issues. But surprisingly, they still come up. So in Gambia, which is a small West African country, um, up until at least 2018, voting was done using glass marbles, which is a system that was introduced in the 1960s in Gambia to allow all citizens to vote easily, regardless of their reading aptitude. And it works like this. So inside the voting booth, there's Uh, drums that are placed on a bench and each drum is adorned with an image of the political candidate and the symbol for their party and there's a small hole that's then placed in the drum just large enough for a marble and when a voter enters the voting booth and casts their vote using a single marble a small noise of the marble hitting the drum sounds is followed by a bell that signals a vote has been cast and when voting is over officials count up the number of marbles in each drum so you would think okay easy enough why don't we just all adopt this marble system which i actually think is very cool i want to vote by marble the method isn't foolproof though slight shifts in sounds from one drum to the next can throw secrecy out the window and if a voter chooses not to cast a vote a lack of that bell ringing will give their nominee away so you can go into the voting booth and if no one hears a bell, everyone around you knows that you actually decided not to cast a vote for any of the candidates. And then um, if you're a really good listener or if you're specifically listening to figure out which drum is for which candidate, you can do that too. You can do that too, even though that sounds very, very challenging. I don't think it's worth the effort. I haven't figured out if they've continued that after 2018, but I know it was done up until then. Well, I think that is a a great segue into talking about some of the ways that uh, elections can go wrong. So actually, the story I was most excited to tell uh, that is like the reason why I was like, we should do an election themed episode. Trust me, folks, I don't want to think about the election either. But I really wanted to talk about Edgar Allan Poe and how he may have been killed in a voter fraud scheme. So no one knows exactly for sure how Edgar Allan Poe died. He was traveling and he was then found in Baltimore, seemingly really inebriated. And, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, if you've read his stuff, like, you know, he drank and he was a sad drunk. And so it is totally possible that he just got himself into some trouble or maybe had uh, an underlying illness that led to him, you know, basically being found like in a bad way uh, outside a random bar in Baltimore. And he died not long after he was brought to the hospital. But there is this one theory that even though we'll probably never be able to prove it, I just find so fascinating. We do know that Poe happened to be found on election day in Baltimore and that uh, where he was found was both a bar and a polling place, (laughs) because I guess that's a thing that people used to do. So Baltimore elections in particular were really notorious for being very corrupt uh, at this time. This was uh, 1849. And there were political gangs that would do just about anything to get their candidate elected. Any any kinds of 
bribing or ballot stuffing or stealing you can think of. But they also did this thing called cooping, where they would just kidnap random people and hold them in a room called the coop, um, hence the name. And we know that when cooping took place, basically what would happen is that this person would be dragged around and forced to vote at multiple polls. So they were basically being used uh, to commit voter fraud because the gangs just needed as many bodies as possible circulating through the polls and placing votes for their candidate of choice. And so victims of cooping were often plied with alcohol, perhaps even drugged in some circumstances with opium or um, another you know, substance. And they very often were um, put into different outfits so that they could actually be forced to go through the same polls multiple times and vote again. And so Edgar Allan Poe was indeed found in like a weird ramshackle outfit that was not his usual black woolen suit. And he had definitely been drinking a lot. It seemed like maybe he had been beaten up a bit. And so this theory is that he um, was cooped and they just dumped him. And, you know, he had like a pretty weak constitution. And the theory is that, you know, the combination of alcohol and uh, roughing up just proved too much for him. So, again, there's no way to prove this. And there have been some biographers of Edgar Allan Poe who have just absolutely hated this theory. But it persists because it's a great story. And also, you know, a a bad way to go out, I have to say. Yeah. Wow. That was wild and not at all what I expected when you said you were doing this fact. (laughs) Good Lord. I have a fact, but I do not have a transition into the fact. (laughs) So I'm just going to jump in because there's no way to connect this to Edgar Allan Poe, I don't think. However, I am here to talk to you about the most fraudulent election <laughs> in history. Um, actually, we could we could get a death in here. I'll squeeze a death in here, and that'll be our transition. Okay. Perfect. Great. So um, the most fraudulent election in history, according to Guinness World Records, was incumbent Liberian president Charles D.B. King, who somehow got 234,000 votes, despite there only being 15,000 eligible voters. <laughs> Because (laughs) at the time... Just a little too overzealous. (laughs) Yeah, you know. um, I think it's funny that that it was so fraudulent that it was like a mistake. Like, I just don't even understand how we got to this point. But yeah, it was uh, at the time only Americo Liberians could vote. So if you were an indigenous person living in Liberia, you could not vote. Um, So 15,000 people could vote. Uh, His opponent got 9,000 votes, which seems to suggest he would have won. So I guess there was reason for it to be fraudulent because he was going to lose. But he cheated and he won, I believe. So um, that's just a fun little fact about Liberia. Uh, Other interesting facts about the Liberian government, though. Uh, In general, there is definitely a lot of corruption. But I think it is worth noting that Liberia managed to gain their independence in 1847, which is like a century before any other country in Africa, or most of the other ones. So South Africa was in 1910, but most of the rest of the continent, not until the 1950s. And they have been electing their presidents ever since, for the most part. There was one or two uh, violent coups in there, and so there were some deaths, and that will be our transition. Um, but <laughs> it is the it is the first and oldest modern republic in Africa. So uh, Liberia, if you do not know, because I did not until I met a guy from Liberia, is a country that is, was founded by freed enslaved people coming from the U.S. and the Caribbean. So their government is based on ours. Like they have exactly the same three branches and they have their own Supreme Court. And it's like a little bit different because Liberia is a, a different country demographically to the U.S. But it is it is very similarly structured. Like the U.S., they denied suffrage to their indigenous people until a military coup in 1980. Um, but also they elected a female president in 2005. She was the first elected head of state in Africa. So Liberia is a, it's a mixed bag, presidentially speaking, but very interesting. I'd also like to give a shout out to Emmanuel because I don't think he listens to this podcast, but I'm going to tell him to listen to it and he's going to be excited. So hi, Emmanuel. <laughs> How's it going? Quick question, Sarah. 
when exactly did this fraudulent election in Liberia happen? Right. Sorry. It was uh, it was in 1927. So quite a long time ago. I don't know what the voting system was at the time that they managed to get 234,000 <laughs> fake votes. But yeah, almost a century ago now. Okay, good. I'd be worried if it was much more recent. Yeah, yes. Speaking of voter fraud, this is a little PSA for anybody concerned about how many people who are voting by mail this year because of COVID-19. Actually, all research and data on the subject suggests that uh, voting by mail is not rife with corruption or attempts at fraud. So the Electronic Registration Information Center, which is a nonprofit, recently found that in three states, I believe, that use vote by mail, there were just 372 possible cases of double voting or voting on behalf of a deceased person. And that was out of 14.6 million votes cast by mail in the 2016 and 2018 general election. So that's 0.0025%. So worry about other things. Voting by mail, it's great. It improves access to voting. And we want everyone to vote. I love that PSA, Rachel. And on the list of things that people currently should be worried about in terms of voting, uh, gerrymandering is at the very top as well. Uh, So just a little history on gerrymandering, which involves um, the redrawing of voting districts by politicians so that, you know, it might be rigged toward one party versus the other um, rather than being actually based on population data. Uh, So this practice goes back to 1812 when the governor of Massachusetts, Elbridge Jerry, he decided that he didn't like how the voting map of Massachusetts uh, fell. So he got a little help from his fellow Republican politicians in the state government to just recreate that map um, in a way that distributed the party votes more widely across the state. And the result of those districts, which was published in the Boston Gazette, and you can even go look up a scan of the map in the Library of Congress, kind of uh, looked like a curled up dragon. And the reporters in the Boston Gazette, they made a joke that it actually looked like a salamander. So they came up with the term gerrymander, a portmanteau of Elbridge Jerry's name and salamander. And yeah, I mean, it worked for Elbridge. He ended up winning the next election quite soundly. And uh, sadly, the gerrymandering still exists widely in the U.S. today. It's been debated in the Supreme Court, but really it comes down to state laws. And uh, this current census that we uh, just participated in, the 2020 national census, the results of that might might have a big influence on how voting maps look in the future. You shouldn't worry about voter fraud, but you should worry about gerrymandering. Yes. That's oh, all absolutely. I have to say. And we should worry about gerrymandering so much that I have another PSA about voter suppression. Sorry, I'm going to make you think about something important just for a little bit. So voter suppression is a really serious problem. And uh, one particular example of it is um, voting ID laws. So if you've never really stopped to think about voter ID laws, they might make sense to you. It, You know, we want people to be who they say they are when they vote and to only vote once. But voter ID laws uh, are often referred to as a solution in search of a problem. In-person fraud is really rare. The ACLU, that's the American Civil Liberties Union, cites a study that since the year 2000, there were only 31 credible allegations of voter impersonation. Um, And, you know, that's the only type of voter fraud that photo IDs could actually prevent. And a lot of the instances of supposed fraud are actually honest mistakes. It's an election worker messing up um, or a voter showing up in the wrong place, uh, that kind of thing. 
And voter ID laws limit the number of people who are able to vote. And this disproportionately affects Black Americans and other marginalized groups. So there are millions of Americans who don't have a photo ID, um, actually 11 percent of U.S. citizens. That's more than 21 million Americans. And this is often because, like, IDs cost money. Even if you have a free option for getting an ID, you often need other paperwork to get it, like birth certificates. And so those documents uh, and the requirements for them means that lower-income Americans are less likely to have a government-issued photo ID than wealthier Americans. And if you have a physical disability or you're elderly or you're in a rural area and you don't have reliable access to transportation— That also makes it harder for you to go uh, to get an ID. Uh, According to the ACLU, there are some parts of rural Texas where you need to travel almost 200 miles to get to the nearest ID office. So we know that voter ID laws lower turnout by several percentage points, you know, to the the tune of tens of thousands of votes. Um, We know that they disproportionately affect minority voters. Only around 8% of white people in America lack photo IDs, but up to a quarter of uh, Black citizens of voting age do not have them. And yeah, it's also a law that can be implemented in a really discriminatory manner. Um, For example, in Texas, you can use a concealed weapons permit to vote, but you can't use a student ID card. So yikes, voter ID laws, they're bad. We shouldn't have them. The data doesn't support them. And that is just one example of the way that state laws can make it harder for people to cast their ballots. And yeah, you should worry about that way more than you should worry about voter fraud. That's what the data says. Yeah, way more. More people didn't vote in the last election, like as in 2016, uh, than voted for either candidate. And and definitely a lot of those are from voter suppression, just like people who who have found it too difficult to actually be able to vote, which is um, really awful. Also, a lot of people who feel like uh, my vote doesn't really count, doesn't really matter. I'm just one person. But the number of elections that have been decided by literally one vote is like, it's bigger than zero. There's more than a dozen. Oh, no. <laughs> there was a uh, there was a Republican House race in 2018 that was lost by one vote. And it turned out that the guy's friend had forgotten to mail in his ballot. He left it on his kitchen <laughs> oh, counter, goodness. which is so sad. The same thing happened in Washington for um, a state House primary. One of the guy's like work colleagues forgot to mail in his ballot and he lost by one by one vote um, in 2017. <laughs> There was a race for the Virginia House of Delegates that ended in a tie and literally was broken by pulling a name out of a bowl. And significantly, that also gave the GOP control of the state house by one seat, which is wild. And in 2016, there was a Vermont state house seat that was decided by a single vote. And the race was a rematch from 2010 when the race was also decided by one vote, but in the other direction. So they, in in those intervening years, I guess they persuaded one person to switch sides, which I think is wild. <laughs> also, don't vote for your friends and coworkers um, if you don't agree with their actual platforms. This isn't. We're not voting for prom king here. Vote for yeah. Who if you, you want to vote for, if you believe if you believe in them, you should. But don't your vote your vote is secret. So if you think your friend would be would be bad at governing. Don't vote for them. Vote for someone else. No one will know. You can lie. And speaking of that tiebreaker that you mentioned, Sarah, of them needing to break it by drawing a name out of a bowl, there's more tiebreakers out there, and they're worse. In 2014, (laughs) according to the Orlando Sentinel, the Mount Dora City Council race was decided when the city clerk drew a candidate's name out of a felt top hat. So this was a tiebreaker as well. And they're like, let's just kick it back old school style. In the 2000 presidential (laughs) election, Al Gore beat George W. Bush in New Mexico by just 366 votes. But if it had been a tie, state law says that the winner would have been decided by a game of chance, such as, they say, a single hand of poker. Uh, (laughs) Oh my god. That's not a game of chance. That's not chance. 
<laughs> wow. Imagine if it came down to their poker skills. <laughs> it would be, I, I would be in very bad shape. Um, and other elections have also been called by coin flips and ping pong ball drawing akin to like a lottery drawing. So whoever gets the highest number wins the election. I know there's like That's not so a great way to, think about. to break ties, <laughs> but shouldn't there be? Because that seems this silly. This just feels like, like a family game night where they're like, okay, this is what happens when it's a tie. <laughs> but for real in elections. <laughs> yeah. And if you need another form of tie breaking, there's always <laughs> that octopus that... Um, oh my goodness, yes. People say guesses the correct Super Bowl winner every single year. So, yeah, let's just use the octopus to uh, <laughs> predict our election. A winner decided by octopus. <laughs> let's talk about some really bizarre candidates and winners. Perbita, I think uh, I think you have a particularly freaky one to start us off with. Yeah, we've seen... This happened across multiple states and towns, uh, but you'll regularly hear local stories about candidates getting elected after they've died. So one particular example, in November of 2018 in Nevada, uh, Dennis Hoff, who was a pretty controversial figure, he owned uh, some big brothels in the state and also had been accused of sexual assault. Uh, He won the state assembly primary and was on the ticket um, to, you know, head head to the Capitol and uh, stayed on the ticket even though he died in his sleep in October. So what happens when, you know, a candidate dies uh, while they're still in the running, the decision lands with the state government. So if the state decides that, you know, they want to leave a dead candidate on the ballot and then, depending on the results, um, end up replacing them with a candidate of their choosing, they can do that. Uh, and it's it's a pretty strategic decision. So that's what ended up happening in Nevada. Uh, it's happened in California. It's happened in Alaska. So, yeah, just uh, stay up on the news on whether your candidates are still breathing or not um, come November. Of course, on the flip side, uh, we get a lot of politicians talking about voter fraud in that Ballots are getting mailed out to people who've died and who can't actually, you know, cast a authentic vote. There's been a lot of research and data on this, and a lot of the experts who analyze this data say that it actually doesn't happen that often. Uh, Voter registration lists are constantly updated on the county level. So when people pass away, they're usually removed from these lists. And even if they're not, even if they do get sent a ballot, it's usually very rare that someone else will try and forge their signature and send a vote in. Um, So, you know, if you hear people talking about this, there's there's a little juice for you to uh, extend that conversation. Pervita, I I see your dead candidate and I raise you mayor foot powder. Oh wow, well done on that transition. <laughs> now, I don't think anyone at Popsi, including me, believes that the election process is a laughing matter. But for one coastal town in Ecuador, residents just seemed like they needed a grin. Maybe it was a down year. It was like a a COVID-type year. So according to local reports, a foot powder named Pulvapis was elected mayor of this 4,000-resident coastal town in Ecuador. During the peak of campaigning for municipal elections in the town, the foot powder company ran ads as a joke with the slogan, quote, vote for any candidate, but if you want well-being and hygiene, vote for Pulvapis. 
And as additional jokes um, and laughs, they sent out these marketing, they, and for marketing tactics, I would assume, the company sent out these pamphlets that resembled the official voting papers, which were the same size and color. And they said, quote, for mayor, honorable Polvapis. And on election day, to everyone's surprise, the foot powder ended up coming away with a sweeping win. So everyone sent in <laughs> for the foot powder to win. Now, obviously, they redid. Wait, did, okay. Sorry, did they did they <laughs> mail in the fake ballots? Correct. Or did they write in the foot powder? Um, so wow. it's obviously a very, very popular story. And I had to go off of reports from Ecuador as well as other people who had covered it. But it seems like they did a combination of writing in for the foot powder and sending in these fake pamphlets. Wow. Correct. Wow. What a terrible <laughs> joke in the end. I honestly, I think it's very, very funny. Did the foot powder serve? Um, the foot powder did not serve. It served its purpose on their feet. And I'm sure that many, many people went out and bought this foot powder after. It's making me almost want to buy this foot powder. And I've never used foot powder in my life. But I'm like, if it could get elected mayor, it's got to do something good for your feet. So, yeah. I'm assuming they just eliminated the votes. So they had to pick a new mayor, I guess. They did have to pick a new mayor. I do not know how they picked the new mayor, but the original votes, the foot powder won. So Claire, do you know if the foot powder was for athlete's foot or dry skin? Was it a single issue foot powder or did it, you know, address a lot of different conditions? Wow, that's a that's a great interesting question that I didn't expect. Um, I think it was like an all purpose foot powder for like the everyman. Like anti itching. Yeah. yeah. Smell. Yeah. I don't Just know. Like anything anything um. that your foot needs, this powder had. <laughs> well, with a platform like that, of course it won. Yeah, I'd vote um, for it too. <laughs> It's hard to top foot powder, um, but I have some unusual candidates who uh, actually served, in air quotes. So first, I'm going to talk about Lucy Liu, not the actress. Lucy L-O-U. We can talk about the other Lucy Liu another time. But <laughs> Lucy Liu was the first female mayor of Rabbit Hash, Kentucky, and ran on the campaign slogan, the you can count on. She was also a border collie. Aww. Cute. Heck yeah. Um, I love border that. Collies. <laughs> I would love a shirt with that slogan. The you can count <laughs> yeah, on. For sure. So this is actually a not uncommon thing in towns that aren't incorporated. So they don't actually have any need for their own government. Um, you know, they are they are governed by the, the county that they are in. They do not have autonomous operations to take care of. But uh, so, yeah, you'll see these like random small or really rural unincorporated towns that do um, figurehead elections, these ceremonial elections that generally are to raise money for a local charity or just for the town budget. And they are often animals. <laughs> um, Lucy Liu, actually, she was the first mayor of Rabbit Hash not to die while in office. But she did leave to make a bid for president. Uh, her campaign manager and owner, Bobby Kayser, told HuffPost in 2016, all the other presidential candidates are dogs. Why shouldn't a real one run? Um, she did not successfully Ooh. run for president, though. And <laughs> animals cannot run for actual elected office in the U.S. But yeah, there's like a, a whole list uh, on Wikipedia of animals that have run or been elected to office. There have been goats. There have been goats that drank beer. There was a cat named Stubbs who was a, a mayor in Alaska for like 15 years, I think. There uh, Apparently, Stubbs would drink. They would put catnip in water and he would drink it out of wine glasses. <laughs> there have been lots of dogs. And in addition to animals, these kinds of figurehead just for fun elections 
often elect small children, which is how I found the five-year-old two-time mayor of Dorset, Minnesota, Bobby Tufts. So Dorset is a small, unincorporated town. It's supposedly the restaurant capital of the world. I, I don't know exactly what that means, but that's how they build themselves. And elections there, you vote by paying a dollar to put someone's name into a bowl. And then the winner is chosen at random. So you can greatly increase your chances of winning by uh, having friends or family that will pay a dollar to vote for you. So yeah, Bobby was mayor for two terms. Most of his job was to like show up at uh, town events and give out candy and pose for photos. And apparently his mom was like, I'm really ready to not have this responsibility to drag my five-year-old places for ceremonial events anymore. But he was replaced by uh, Eric Mueller. This was in 2014. He was a 16-year-old who didn't even live in the town. His family just vacations there, which is rude. But he had just set a local record for eating fried ice cream. He ate five of them in a row. And so that gave him enough notoriety, I guess, that he had uh, some votes in the game and was able to win. But uh, Bobby, you know, graciously ceded the race to his older opponent. But uh, there are really cute and kind of scary videos of the power tripping five year old mayor. I really recommend looking them up. Um, oh my goodness! <laughs> wow. Yeah. Did you guys did you guys know that the first female mayor was put on the ballot by a bunch of men as a joke? But she was like a legit like she she had mayoral powers. Like it was not a just like a small town. Like ah ha ha, the mayor doesn't do anything. Um, uh, this was in, in Kansas in 1887. Um, so prohibition was a major issue of the time. And the women's Christian temperance union was campaigning for like various prohibitionist men for office, um, because that was generally who held office back then. But a bunch of anti-prohibitionist men thought that they could kind of squash the issue by basically like they copied the same slate of people as the prohibitionist faction but then instead of the mayor whoever they nominated uh they put Susanna Madora Salter who was a 27 year old wife and mother at the time and they just figured only true extremists would vote for a woman that was so silly so the prohibitionist plan would fail like everyone was just going to vote uh like who would possibly vote for a woman and when her name like went up on election day all the like local townsfolk kind of like went over to her and was like did you know that you're on the ballot and would you like to maybe not be on the ballot and she said no and she ended up with 60 percent of the vote and her husband apparently was very supportive he made made some jokes about how funny it was that he was the husband of the mayor. That was so ridiculous at the time. <laughs> but she served as mayor, legitimately, which I think is great. How is this not a movie already? Yeah, it sounds like the ideal yeah, situation I agree. for it. I think the fact that the protagonist would be a prohibitionist probably makes it a less fun movie. <laughs> True. That's fair. the The ladies' temperance union has not been treated very kindly or glamorously by history. So, speaking of history, what a great transition! Very natural. Um, yeah, I wanted to just harken back real quick to some of our previous weirdest thing stories uh, about presidents founding fathers, um, just a few so that listeners uh, maybe will go back and check those episodes out if they haven't yet. So in one of our episodes, that I, I believe features a title, Zombie President, in it, uh, we talk about how after George Washington died, there was a physician who really earnestly wanted to try to bring him back to life by pumping him full of lamb's blood. So that would have been cool. But it didn't happen and it wouldn't have worked. So moving on. Ben Franklin, not a president, but close enough. And I will take any excuse to mention this fact. He liked to take air baths, which was just sitting around in the nude. He would he would just spend time sitting around naked, 
preferably outside. He thought that water baths were often too bracing, but the <laughs> but sitting around naked in the air really stirred his constitution. What a sensitive dude. Um, <laughs> indeed. And yeah, this isn't from a Weirdest Thing episode, but relatedly, I found out that John Quincy Adams really liked skinny dipping in the Potomac River early in the mornings. So there there may have been people who saw the president uh, in the buff. That might have been a thing that regularly happened back in the day. Also, <laughs> again, not part of a Weirdest Thing episode, but since we uh, talked about dueling, keeping you from office in Tennessee, um, I promised that I would talk about a very dual-happy president. And indeed, Andrew Jackson fought more than 100 duels in his lifetime and definitely killed at least one dude. Like, we know for sure at least one of those duels ended in murder. But, you know, uh, he wasn't good enough for Tennessee, but he was good enough for America. Yeah, so another amazing, maybe the wrong way to put it, but another fact about (laughs) Andrew Jackson is that his... Critics used to call him a jackass, and instead of letting that get him down, I guess, he um, actually reclaimed the title and turned it into a positive uh, persona for himself. He saw the donkey as a stubborn and strong and willing symbol for himself, But anyway, that ended up evolving into a larger symbol for the Democratic Party, which Andrew Jackson was part of. So a lot of people probably wonder how the Democrats ended up being associated with donkeys and the Republicans were associated with elephants. Uh, So Andrew Jackson is kind of the beginning of the story, but the symbols didn't actually become mainstream until later in the 1870s. And it was thanks to one pretty notorious political cartoonist at the time, uh, Thomas Nast. Just a note on political cartoons, we don't really see them as often today because fewer people read print and newspapers. Uh, But back in the 1800s and early 1900s, Political cartoonists were extremely influential during elections, and Thomas Nast was among the most influential. So he drew a cartoon for Harper's Magazine depicting the Democratic Party as a donkey kicking the remnants of a dead lion, which he was, he meant to symbolize uh, the remnants of the Lincoln administration. He was a big Abe Lincoln fan. So he continued using the donkey to uh, represent the Democrats, and eventually it just stuck. I don't think the party ever officially claimed it as their mascot, as Andrew Jackson had, but it became the mascot in the eyes of the American people. As for the Republicans and the elephant, um, that might have also been Nast motivated. In 1874, he drew a cartoon showing the Republicans as an elephant, but it also might have come from a play on the phrase seeing the elephant, which was used to refer to the Union Army's victory in the Civil War a few decades earlier. Obviously, this put the Republicans in a pretty good light because, you know, elephants, mighty, strong, pretty cool animal. So uh, they did adopt the elephant as their mascot. All right. Get out and vote or stay in and vote, but uh, do it. If you are eligible and able, vote, vote, vote. I hope that you enjoyed these weird and silly and hopefully not stressful or depressing much of the time election-related facts. And uh, we will see you on the other side. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. 
We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.